0: It's Kay, again. Um, I think I've said this before, but it is getting harder and harder of waste. to have, how to introduce this thing. But um, if you've been with me since the beginning, thank you. I'm kind of amazed, to be honest. I know I said I wanted to do a podcast to try to figure out this whole thing, but I never thought I'd get other people interested. I've had a few more emails, some from people who have already contacted me and some from new people too. I do read them all, I promise, but don't be too upset if I don't get round to replying. All of this, well, it's a lot to process and I still have to work and care for my family, you know? I'm not sitting here in a basement with a big corkboard, using string and coloured pins to work out if this is indeed a conspiracy or not. Um, and spoiler alert... I'm hoping it's not conspiracy theorists are such hard work so to that end if you are new then I really recommend you go back and start at the beginning the whole thing is well if I put it this way if I had to do a recap every time I posted I reckon these episodes would be hours long so it really is just easier if you go back and listen to what came before well right updates A couple of you have commented on the plain stories from last week, some saying it was impossible, and there have been some various hypotheses being bandied around about how that could have occurred, Um, a hypothesis that I really need time to get my own head around if I'm honest. Oh, and a shout out to the guy who told me I was just ripping off Stephen King's story, the Langolias, or let Langolias, I don't know how you pronounce that, Um, I'd forgotten about that story and decided to read it again to refresh my memory. It is actually a good tale, and yes, it does involve people in a plane disappearing, but that really is it. So, along with the alien guy, if this ends up with people fawning through time and Big Pac-Man's gobbling up past, then I'll buy you a drink too, okay? Um, okay, yeah, spoiler alert, I guess. I mean, the book's been out since, like, what, the 80s, but even so, sorry, if you haven't read it. Anyway. What really piqued my interest this week was I also had a couple of messages from people asking if I knew what the Mandela effect is. And actually, I do. In fact, I've known about it for years because I've experienced it. Now, for those of you who may not have heard of it, in a nutshell, the Mandela effect is named after Nelson Mandela and not those swirly flower tattoos based off Buddhist art. Um, They're called mandalas. And yeah, I'm totally hoping I'm not the only person out there who got them mixed up at first. I mean, come on, cosmic balance and mysticism through art sounds plausible, right? I can't be the only one. Well, anyway, the Mandela Effect, not the Mandala, as we now know, got its name from Nelson Mandela, the famous South African leader and freedom fighter who died a few years ago. The whole Mandela Effect thing didn't really gain any traction until the early 2000s, and that was probably down to the ubiquitousness of the internet Basically, loads of people came forward saying that they were surprised that Nelson Mandela was still alive, as they vividly remembered him dying in prison in the 1980s. They said that they remembered the newspaper articles, the TV shows, and even his funeral being reported. The lot. But none of it ever happened. Nelson Mandela was released in 1990 and went on to become the president of South Africa, i.e. a really important person. He died in 2013. And it's not just Nelson Mandela that people remember differently. The Berenstein versus the Berenstain Bears. The Monopoly guy and his monocle. A film in the 90s called Shazam. There are loads of examples out there of people's memories being very different from actual reality. Most experts put the Mandela effect down to a form of false memory syndrome and that people who have experienced it are simply just remembering things wrong and talking about it reinforces it. We think we're right because the other people remember it that way too. And logic would dictate that is exactly what is going on. It's been proven time and time again how plastic human memory is though. How it's so easy to influence it, to convince people they've experienced things when they haven't. Except, like I said, I've experienced it. And I had absolutely no idea I had until around, what, about 2011? And it's really disorientating. My story isn't as dramatic as loads of people swearing blind that a major global figure died when he didn't. Um, mine involves a photograph. When I was a kid, I loved anything strange, which probably doesn't come as much of a surprise. I mean, what kid in the 80s didn't like these things? Ghosts, sea monsters, Bigfoot, you name it, I read about it. I grew out of a lot of this when I was a teenager which is kind of ironic given what I'm currently up to, and to be honest, I hadn't thought about much of these things for years until I stumbled on this Facebook thread. (laughs) Remember Facebook? Hmm. About the Mandela effect. I was intrigued. I mean, who wouldn't be? I nodded along sagely with the people saying it was false memory syndrome, scoffing at the people who thought they still had books with the Berenstain Bears in their attics. Um, No one did. Until someone mentioned the Terror Bird. Now, I remember the Terror Bird. I saw a picture of it when I was a kid in one of those strange and unexplained compendium books, you know, some published by Osborne or Scholastic or something like that. In it, there was an old fashioned photo in sepia tones. I reckon it must have been taken in the late 1800s, given the way the men were dressed in it. It had a kind of Wild West feel to it, if you know what I mean. Anyway, in the photo, a group of men, probably around five or six of them, possibly seven, but no more than that, were displaying a corpse of a huge bird. And that's what caught my attention as a kid. Some people said it was nailed to the barn door behind them and others say they were holding it up like a trophy. And I want to say that they were holding it up because I remember being absolutely fascinated by just how big it was. Problem is, there were people on the forum saying it didn't exist. Well, I knew that was wrong, so I immediately went back to look for it. It had to be real, because not only could I remember it, I could remember it vividly to the point where I reckon I could have drawn it. Some of the men had those big, bushy moustaches, and some were dressed in those double-breasted, old-timey military tops. The terror bird's head was slumped forwards, its huge beak almost touching the ground. When I first started searching, I was absolutely confident I'd find the picture, to the point of actual smugness. Of course it existed. I'd seen it. To this day, I have never been able to find it. Because it doesn't exist. You can check if you like. Discovering this was unsettling. It still is. I can still see that photo in my mind's eye 30 years later. I know I saw it. But I couldn't have. Because it isn't real. It doesn't stop me from going to look for it every now and again, though. It's like, if I can find it, or or find the book it was in, then that little bit of reality that has so far failed me might click back into place somehow. I think you probably know where I'm going with this. What if this some kind of huge Mandela effect only everyone has forgotten? like a reverse example? One of the more out there theories that tries to explain the Mandela effect is that the people who experienced it were once on a different track, and that they're actually remembering something from their old reality that somewhere, somehow, they got pulled from their own reality and skipped into an adjacent one, where things are almost identical, but not quite. In their original world, Nelson Mandela did die in prison. The Monopoly man did have a monocle, and there was indeed an old-fashioned photo of some men holding up the corpse of an impossibly huge bird. Then something happened, and they ended up here, In a timeline when none of these things were true. Maybe there was a global catastrophe on the 29th of February 1988. Only it happened somewhere else. Maybe the person who hoarded all this stuff managed to somehow defy the odds and bring their research with them when they jumped tracks. Or maybe it happened here. And we've all jumped from a place where it didn't occur because the collective trauma of living with the reality of it all was just simply too much for our psyche to bear. We, we jumped to protect ourselves somehow. Maybe one of you out there remembers and has spent years in total confusion, wondering why no one seems to care about such an awful thing. I don't know. I mean, in case you hadn't noticed, I'm not an expert in these things. All I do know is that in a small way, I have experienced this phenomenon and it is as weird as fuck. I couldn't find a letter that directly tied into the Mandela effect. Or rather, should I say, they're all potentially an example of it? So it didn't really matter which one I picked. If I'm honest, I'm not entirely sure what made me pick this one. There's just... There's something about it, about the place where it happened. Again, by the sea, but not in a bright, happy seaside village or a glitzy beach resort. There's an unsettling edge to all of the letters and reports, but this one? Like I said, I just don't know. There's something not right about it. The person who wrote it frames it more like a story, giving it a slightly surreal queasy edge that I can't quite put my finger on. You might not agree, and that's okay. All I know is that this one bothered me, and I don't know why. You be the judge. In memory of Marcy Winters. You weren't happy. That much was obvious. You whined and complained about the distance, about the stink, about how it was your birthday and you wanted a happy meal, not to be forced to walk around a dilapidated fishing village. By the time we reached the shore, Mum had had her fill of you, leaving me feeling particularly smug when she asked why you couldn't be more like me. But it's not Matt's birthday, you whined. I wanted to go somewhere special on my birthday. Marcy! Even I knew not to push it when Mum used that tone. You know how important this place is to your father. He spent weeks planning this, and you're not going to ruin it for him. But mum didn't say anything else. She didn't need to. The look did all the work for her. I watched as the desire to chat back crawled its ugly way across your face. And for a moment, I thought you might give in to it. But you wisely remained quiet. Look what I've got! There was no disguising the glee in Dad's voice as it floated across the oily waters of the harbour. Ice cream! You rolled your eyes at that, muttering something about Happy Meals being better for birthdays, and we could get ice cream anywhere. I kind of wanted to kick you for that. I mean, I get it. Would I have been disappointed if it had been my birthday? Of course I would. But at the same time, to see Dad that happy, especially after all the crap with work... He also deserved to enjoy himself, which is why I plastered that grin on my face as he handed me my own melting cone. Hey, honey, what's up? Dad asked as he handed you your cone. I got you chocolate. That's your favourite, right? There was a hint of nervousness to Dad's voice now, like he was worried he'd upset you. I like to think you saw that and realised what an ass you were being when you said, It's okay, thank you, Daddy. But the way you put on that baby voice makes me wonder if you were just being sarcastic. Not that it mattered. Dad grinned, handed Mum her cone and started eating his own, his enthusiasm abating within the first few licks. It gave mine a taste. There was a rancid back note to the ice cream, a kind of acrid bitterness that made me wonder exactly how long the ice cream seller had had it in his freezer. Mum obviously noticed it too because she glanced at Dad after a couple of licks, both looking alarmed and worried. Ah, honey... This ice cream tastes funny, you said, and I think these chocolate chips are off. You picked one out of the melting sludge and inspected it carefully, your face transforming from concentration to abject disgust. Ew, you shrieked, dropping your cone on the filthy cobblestones. They're bugs! Dad looked crestfallen as you extended your hand to show him. And you were right. They were bugs. Little beetle things. I later found out they were probably sea lice, little parasitic crustaceans that live on fish. We all went a bit green at that. Dad gathered the cones back up, but couldn't find a trash bin, so instead he dumped them over the seawall and into the water below, his expression guilty. We should complain, Mum said. We don't want to spoil Marcy's day, Dad replied. But what if we get sick? Phil, we need to. Dad shook his head. Things often went like this. I'm not saying my dad was a coward, but he really wasn't one for conflict. Mum, though, she was another kettle of fish altogether. Muttering under her breath, she left us standing in the road while she marched off to find the ice cream cellar. After a few minutes, she marched right back, looking even more furious if that was possible. Dad cringed as she approached. I remember you taking a small step back, your eyes wide. My stomach sank, hoping Dad would say the right thing to diffuse her rage. Is everything... He's not there, Mum barked. Gone. Disappeared into thin air. Of all the things I was expecting her to say, that was not one of them. He's gone? Dad couldn't disguise his relief. Another major explosion averted. Mum continued to mutter to herself as we left the harbour road and wandered up the jetty. You were right about one thing. This place did stink. Old fish, rotten seaweed and something else I couldn't quite put my finger on but it made me think of dead things sweating in the sun. I really felt for Dad. He'd been so excited to come here, to show us where his family was from. His grandfather had grown up in Innsmouth. I remember how he used to tell us stories of pirates and treasures and adventures to the South Seas before bed, and how we would whisper to each other, making up our own tales of heroes and sea monsters. Now we were here, those stories were broken. In my mind's eye, I had populated Innsmouth with huge ships and buxom wenches, salty old sea dogs and golden doubloons, but now we were here, it was just not very nice. Old, certainly, but not antique. Yes, there were sailors, but they consisted of odd-looking fishermen who eyed us suspiciously as we wandered up the mostly rotten jetty. There were indeed narrow, crooked streets, but rather than taverns, they were flanked by neglected houses with flaking paint and boards nailed over the windows. Even the boats were wrong. There were no ships, just squat fishing boats that belched out clouds of greasy smoke as they tugged up to their moorings, their nets filled with ugly, misshapen fish and far too many squirming squid. One of these boats chugged up to a mooring right next to us, the smoke from the exhausts making us cough. The seagulls screamed overhead as one of the fishermen leapt from the gunwale, a thick, slimy rope in one hand, and tied the boat up while the skipper mercifully cut the engine. More strange-looking men lurched out of the boat, clutching dirty plastic boxes which they placed under the trawler's net that held the day's catch. When the bottom of the net was released, a torrent of fish spewed into those boxes, their silvery, slippery bodies skipping over one another as their mouths gasped. Some fish managed to skip out of the boxes, and as they flopped around on the jetty, I saw you turn green. Fish can be beautiful things, but these fish were not. They were oddly flabby, with huge mouths filled with needle-sharp teeth. You stepped back and shrank against Dad as one of the fishermen drew a cudgel from his belt and smacked it down on the, on the head of the escapee. It spasmed violently on impact, its skull shattering under the weight of the blow. Viscous grey matter splattered, mostly on the jetty, but also on the fisherman. not that he seemed to notice. I stared in horror as the fishermen moved to the next escaped fish and then the next, and the next, clubbing each one with a horrifying efficiency. Then I heard you sobbing quietly. You had your face buried into Dad's side, and at that moment I don't think I'd ever felt as sorry for anyone as I did for you right then. Come on, Dad said quietly. Maybe we should go back to the car, find Marcy a happy meal. At that, you started to cry even harder. Mum took over, ushering us off the jetty. Dad paused for a moment, looking out over the water. I felt sorry for him too. He'd so wanted to share this place with us. It, was, it wasn't his fault that it was a complete and utter shit show. Phil, Mum said, leaving Marcy near the harbour wall. But Dad didn't reply. Instead he frowned. Can you feel that? None of us got to answer him. It's hard to describe what happened next, no matter how much we try. Some people have said it was a concussive force... Others, a great cacophony of dissonant shouting. To me, it was like the whole ocean spoke at once, an overwhelming discordant rush of clicks and screams underpinned by a deep, rolling roar that shook my insides to the point where I thought I might throw up. I was surprised when it stopped and found out that I was still alive. I'd been so sure we'd been hit by a tsunami. I lay on the slimy ground, the whole world tinted pink. I scrubbed up my nose, a long red trail was left along my sleeve. Next to me, Dad looked like he'd been to hell. Blood trickled from his eyes and ears, and a bubble of it played peekaboo with his left nostril before bursting and dribbling over his top lip. I tried to sit up, but the ground rocked beneath me. Odd was all Dad could manage as he groped out with one hand and found mine. I couldn't reply. Marcy? Mum's voice was croaky and thin, its usually steady course shaking marcy the note of panic had my heart pounding both dad and i pushed ourselves up into a sitting position mum was on her knees crawling around like when she was looking for a lost earring crying out your name over and over again underneath the jetty the oily water churned and that's when i realized you were missing i don't remember much else Dad jumping in the water and almost drowning in his desperate bid to find you. The fishermen regarding us owlishly, their soft-boiled eyes huge and bleeding. One of them said something to another, which had Mum charging over, demanding to know what he'd said. The fisherman simply shrugged and turned away from her. I don't know the significance of it, but I'm sure I saw him smile as he did. We spent hours looking for you. Dad even paid one of the fishermen to use his nets to trawl the seabed around the jetty. We tramped the streets and banged on doors for hours, but you were nowhere to be found. That night, Mum did nothing but cry, and Dad just stared at the wall. He bought me a happy meal at dinner time. I didn't eat it. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I still have panic attacks at the sight of those golden arches. It's an association thing, I guess. For a while, I couldn't help but wonder if you'd still be with us if we hadn't visited that godforsaken place. Obviously, we later realised that it wasn't just us, that the whole world had been affected, and that millions of people had simply vanished, but that didn't make it any easier. It's been nearly four years since you disappeared. I'm 17 now. You would be coming up for 15. We should be driving our parents up the wall with our unwise decisions and teenage antics. Instead... I don't dare leave the house. If I do, Mum starts to panic, afraid that whatever snatched you would come back for me. Dad? Well, Dad didn't cope. If the worst did happen that day, and you are actually dead, I hope you find one another. He deserves that one small mercy. In loving memory, your brother, Matthew Winters. Like I said, I I still don't know what to make of this one. If I'd read it first, my theory that this is all a creative project of some time might have felt a bit stronger. But then the kid was only 17 when he wrote it, and 17-year-old kids are prone to centering recollections on themselves. I thought the town sounded familiar, so I looked it up, but it doesn't exist, except in fiction. Famous fiction, actually. Innsmouth is a place horror writer and unrepentant racist H.P. Lovecraft has set some of his stories – Again, reinforcing that this is simply a slightly distasteful writing project. But then I think of the boxes I found those reports in and how the brand name is slightly different. The whole premise of the Mandela effect is around the idea that things are subtly wrong in our recollections. That we remember one thing clearly but then discover we're simply incorrect. Nelson Mandela didn't die in prison. There are no photos of the terror bird and Innsmouth is a fictional town. Or, at least that's true in this universe. It might be different in others. Well, one thing I do know is that all of this is giving me a headache. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, it is physically actually giving me a headache. Ever since I started looking into this, I feel like I've been running a low-level fever. I'm tired, achy, can't sleep, brain fog. Maybe I should give this all up when I'm ahead. And by ahead, I mean... I still have most of my marbles. But every time I think of stopping, I don't know. Something makes me continue. It could be nothing more than stupid curiosity. But I'm not so sure it's that simple. Whatever it is, it's not right. That's all I know. This whole phenomenon is completely fucked up. And no matter how hard I try to let it go, it won't relinquish its hold on me. Look, I need to finish this, and I don't have the spoons right now to make it sound fancy, so as always, contact details are in the show notes if you think you know anything about this. And I won't lie. I kind of hope you don't. See you next time. Okay. Museum of the Missing is written, performed, and produced by Claire Waller. The title song, Museum of the Missing, was written by David Rizal and is performed by David Rizal and Claire Rizal. It is used with permission. If you're enjoying the story, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact details and social media links are in the show notes. If you wish, you may also buy the podcast a coffee at Museum of the Missing. Thank you for listening. But time has gone astray It's the haru